Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast, where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Kakai, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Today we're going to continue our series based on Plutarch's lives of the noble Grecians and Romans. Today's subjects are Phocion and Cato the Younger, both of whom I would say are little known today. And as before, it should be noted, Plutarch was a Greek writing at the time of the Julio-Claudian emperors. And although some of the forms of the Roman Republic survived, not much of the spirit did. Plutarch's attempts to draw a character lesson, I think, depends in part on the difference of the times and he likes to contrast the virtues of past eras with the decadence of the current times. Uh, We're going to start with Phocion, a name I had, I think, probably never heard before. Um, But he was an Athenian orator, statesman, and general known as Phocion the Good to his contemporaries. And as I said, utterly unknown to me prior to researching this podcast. He lived in the Hellenistic period, about which my knowledge is generally vague, Um, He was born about 402 BC, and he was elected strategos, or general, a record 45 times. Plutarch's assessment is that his was a real virtue, only overmatched in the unequal contest with an adverse time. What he's referring to is that Athens was recovering from its catastrophic defeat in the Peloponnesian War, only to be faced with an aggressive rising power in Macedon under Philip II and then Alexander. And as Plutarch observes, At such times, the conduct of public affairs is on all hands most hazardous. Those who humor the people are swallowed up in the common ruin. Those who endeavor to lead them aright perish the first in their attempt. Phocion was a brave and successful general, but his two defining characteristics were contrarianism and freedom from corruption. Unfortunately for him, uh, Plutarch notes that his old-fashioned virtue was out of the present mode among the depraved customs which time and luxury had introduced. As a youth, he'd studied with Plato and later Xenocrates at the academy. In public, he was somber to the point of sullenness, and his oratory was notable for its brevity and power. Although it was said that Demosthenes was the best orator of his time, it was said that Phocion was the most powerful speaker. His military career started under a man named Chabrias, from whom he learned a great deal. He gained distinction as commander of the left wing in the sea battle at Naxos, which was the first Athenian naval victory since its defeat by Sparta. After the battle, Chabria sent him to demand payment from the islanders of their share of the expenses and offered him 20 ships as an escort. 
Oshun responded that if he intended to go as an enemy, that was not enough. If as to friends and allies, one ship was sufficient. He took only his own ship and was successful in obtaining the funds. The other Athenian leaders tended to be split into two groups, one of which pursued its own interests through the assembly and the other which sought profit from war and military commands. Phocian alone sought to reform and restore the old system from the times of Pericles, Aristides, and Solon. His contrarian nature was such he was often the only speaker to espouse a particular course of action, sometimes advocating peace and other times to war. But one time when his speech was met with general approbation and applause, he turned to his friends and asked, have I inadvertently said something foolish? Demosthenes, Demosthenes once told him, the Athenians, Phocian, will kill you someday when they once are in a rage. Phocian replied, and they'll kill you if they once are in their senses. He was sent to Byzantium, which at the time was being besieged by Philip of Macedon. And the first Athenian force had been sent, had not even been allowed into the city because the, the Byzantines didn't trust them. But Phocian's reputation was such he was welcome. And then he was able to uh, ally with the Byzantines, defeat Philip, and expel him from the Hellespont. When it became, became clear that Philip intended war on Athens, Phocian advised a peace treaty but was outvoted. After Athens was defeated, the, the city was forced to contribute both cavalry and shipping to Philip. When Philip died, Phocian advised against public celebration as being both ignoble and unwise, since, as he said, the army that defeated them has only lost one man. Demosthenes repeatedly attacked Alexander in the assembly, and Phocian objected, saying, why stimulate his already eager passion for glory, showing he was an excellent judge of Alexander's character. After defeating Thebes, which I guess we touched on in, uh, in our Epimondas episode, Alexander demanded that Athens hand over several prominent citizens, including Demosthenes. Phocian recommended complying, but was overruled. When Athens sent Alexander its response, he refused to even read it. But then Phocian was sent to present it, and he received him, having understood from the older Macedonians how much Philip admired and esteemed him, which is kind of remarkable when you consider that uh, he'd been responsible for Philip's defeat at Byzantium. Alexander also asked Phocian for advice, and Phocian responded that if he wanted quietness, he should make peace, that if he wanted glory, he should make war on the barbarians rather than Greece. It was reported that after Alexander defeated Darius, he stopped using the word greetings in his correspondence except with Antipater and Phocian. Alexander sent him a gift of a hundred talents and he refused it, saying it would reflect poorly on both himself and Alexander. But he requested some people who'd been enslaved or imprisoned be released, which Alexander did immediately. Upon Alexander's death, Athens, against Phocian's advice, rebelled. Although successful at first, they lacked the means for a long war and were ultimately defeated by Antipater. Antipater demanded hostages, indemnity, limiting Athenian citizenship and establishing a garrison. Uh, Phocian was friendly with the Macedonian commander and became the effective ruler of Athens as leader of the oligarchic party, which made him deeply unpopular, especially after Demosthenes, who'd been forced into exile, uh, died there. After Antipater's death, there was jockeying for the succession, and Phocian seems to have tried to straddle the issue but failed. He was ultimately accused of treachery, condemned by the assembly, and he and some associates were sentenced to death by drinking hemlock. The executioner didn't prepare enough poison for them all and demanded 12 drachmas to prepare a second batch. 
And Phocian's last words were, in Athens, it's hard for a man even to die without paying for it. Uh, interesting guy, um, renowned for his frugal way of lifestyle. And although I didn't elaborate on it, there were numerous other instances where he was offered huge sums of money um, in order to uh, take a particular course of action, and he always declined it. So that was enough for him to be called the good, but not enough to keep him from being uh, killed by the assembly. So, Tom, how's our Roman comparison going to be with Cato the Younger? We'll get to Cato the Younger after this message. I was somewhat familiar with Cato the Younger, or at least I thought I was, and it turns out that I either misremembered or never learned it correctly in the first place. So let me just go through this. Marcus Porcius, also known as Cato of Utica, Cato the Younger, or Cato Minor, was a conservative Roman senator in the period of the late Republic. Uh, he is the great-grandson of Cato the Elder, uh, the really uh, persecutor of, of Rome's great rival Carthage earlier in the podcast uh, we just went through. He was noted orator, follower of the Stoic philosophy. He is remembered for his stubbornness and tenacity, especially in a lengthy conflict with Julius Caesar. He was immune to bribes and moral integrity was first rate and had a famous distaste for the ubiquitous corruption of the era. After receiving his inheritance, uh, Cato moved away from his uncle's house and began to study the Stoic philosophy and politics. He began to live in a very modest way, as his great-grandfather, Cato the Elder, had famously done. Cato the Younger subjected himself to violent exercise and learned to endure cold and rain with a minimum of clothes. He ate only what was necessary and drank the cheapest wine on the market. This was entirely for philosophical reasons. His inheritance would have permitted him to live comfortably. He remained in private life for a long time, rarely seen in public. But when he did appear in the forum, his speeches and rhetorical skills were greatly admired. He was also known to uh, tip a glass of wine or two generously. On his return to Rome in 65 BC, he was elected to the position of quaestor. Like everything else in his life, <coughs> excuse me, he took universal or unusual care to study the background necessary for the post, especially the laws relating to taxes. One of his first moves was to prosecute former questors for illegal appropriation of funds and dishonesty. Cato also prosecuted Sulla's informers who acted as headhunters during Sulla's dictatorship, despite their political connections among uh, Cato's own party. Sulla's informers were accused of first of illegal appropriation of treasury money, then of homicide. At the end of the year, Cato stepped down from his questorship amid popular acclaim, but never ceased to keep an eye on the treasury, always looking for irregularities. As a senator, Cato was scrupulous and determined. He never missed a session of the Senate and publicly criticized those who did so. From the beginning, he aligned himself with the optimates, the conservative faction of the Senate. Interestingly, the, uh, the optimates were the ones who opposed Julius Caesar. Many of the optimates at this time had been Sulla's personal friends who Cato had despised since his youth, yet Cato attempted to make his name by returning the faction to its pure Republican roots. I also found it interesting that the conservatives uh, viewed republicanism as their form of government, not dictatorship. Cato's political and personal differences uh, with Caesar appear to date from uh, his response to the Catal Catalina Rebellion. 
Um, to get Cato out of the way, he was sent to annex Cyprus. He had two major goals in Cyprus. The first was to enact his foreign policy goals, uh, calling for the mildness and uprightness of Roman governors uh, of governors of Roman controlled territory. The second was to implement his reforms of a questorship on a larger scale. Uh, he died a gruesome death, uh, and uh, he partly disemboweled himself and then had to finish the job while he was still alive. Nevertheless, he is one of the favorite Romans throughout history. He was immortalized in Dante's Divine Commedia. Uh, despite Cato having been a pagan, Dante does not place him in the inferno as he does with other non-Christians. Cato is one of two pagans in, uh, presented by Dante in Purgatorio. Uh, Dante tells us that Cato receive, will receive special compensation on the judgment day and will eventually be saved. Montaigne, who we've spoken about a couple of times, was fascinating by the, fascinated by the example of Cato, whether that example was a potential ethical model or simply unattainable standard, uh, it's not clear. Um, but he was Montaigne's favored role model. Cato was also lionized during the Republican revolutions of the Enlightenment, and indeed George Washington had a play about Cato performed to rally his men at Valley Forge. Uh, I'm not sure you can really have a, a greater uh, compliment paid to you than in uh, the depths of a winter in Valley Forge. There's a play about you ordered by the uh, commanding general. Cato opposed Caesar. He couldn't uh, bear really the, the idea of living under Caesar. He basically killed himself so he wouldn't have to live under Caesar. He was not, and I, I want to repeat this, he was not a part of the military opposition to Caesar. He did not bear arms against Caesar. He did not fight with Brutus and Crassus against Caesar, although he clearly uh, was on the other side of the fence from Caesar. He believed that uh, the Republican form of government was uh, the appropriate form of gov government for the Roman people and indeed the, uh, the greater Roman Republic. And perhaps that is what our founding fathers saw so admirable in him. I really didn't get a sense of Cato as a military leader, although his annexation of Cyprus, we must point to that. Um, perhaps uh, by that time, the Roman military was a well-oiled machine and, and could defeat pretty much anyone uh, in the world. Uh, or at least uh, the Roman world at that point. But that was certainly a, a positive uh, when he was uh, the governor. Uh, clearly his incorruptibility, clearly his uh, oversight over the public purse, which apparently was very unusual at this time, and even really uh, opposing Sulla and, and his informers. Um, one thing that I recall from my study of this period of Rome, Richard, was that it was a highly unstable political period. And there's some other Romans that perhaps we will visit later who more exemplify this, the Gracchi brothers specifically. But as I recall, uh, Roman politics basically lurched from one crisis to another. And political assassination was engaged in, and it was a, a very unstable period. We had the first triumvirate, the second triumvirate. Uh, Rome was clearly moving being to some other form of government than the Republic, which I think was founded around 535 BC. Um, nevertheless, uh, Cato the Younger uh, firmly believed in the Republican form of government. Uh, he was an aristocrat. He did bring that to, uh, to the table. And his years in the Roman Senate, I think, 
are, are well, he, he was certainly well served in the Senate. So uh, really a lot to, to look at from Cato from the political perspective. He was, of course, on the losing side. He did commit suicide. Uh, nevertheless, I think history has judged him to, to be one of the, uh, if not more popular Romans, one that uh, many of our founding fathers looked up to. Yeah, which is, uh, which is interesting. Your comments about Rome in the time are, are absolutely spot on. Um, it was just lurching from one crisis to another. And one of the burning questions, I guess, is was the Republic sustainable um, if reformers such as the, as the Gracchi had, uh, had had their way and uh, basically positions in the political elite had been opened up to broader suffrage, could it have survived? Um, and that, that, of course, became a matter of great concern to our founding fathers, the preservation of a republic and um, depending on the virtue of its citizens uh, is always going to be problematic when you're dealing with humans. What we do have here is two humans of very unusual moral fortitude, um, especially with regards to refusing bribes and avoiding uh, wealth and physical comfort out of uh, philosophical reasons rather than uh, need. Um, Foshan was, was a really interesting character to me because he was held in such high esteem by even his... Uh, his opponents and enemies. Um, but then just ultimately, I think his contrarianism um, is what eventually uh, led the Athenians to turn on him. And he, he was a pragmatist. He was, he was willing to work with the, the Macedonian conquerors in order to alleviate the terms they, they set on Athens and make uh, life more tolerable for the Athenians. And the Athenians, of course, ultimately regarded that as a betrayal. Um, whether it was or not, I think, is, is an interesting argument. In terms of leadership, um, Foshan was, was much more successful uh, in personal diplomacy and as a military general than he was in, in the larger political arena. Uh, I think Cato was, um, is another example of someone who, who was fighting the good fight and ultimately was unsuccessful. Um, whether he could have ever been, I don't know. Um, I guess one of the questions we, you and I had uh, discussed before this was whether anyone could have handled the, the situation with Philip II and Alexander um, and the rise of Macedon against the Greek city-states any better than Phocian did. Uh, what, what's your opinion on that? I don't think that at that point in time, Athens really was in a position to do anything. The fault or the sanction that Alexander, um, or Philip then Alexander, I guess it was out by that time Alexander, put on the Greeks, any Greek city-states that revolted was basically destruction of the city. And uh, he was ruthless, ruthless in that. I don't think initially Philip then Alexander destroyed the cities they conquered, uh, but if they left and those cities revolted, I think the, uh, both of them were merciless going forward. The Greek cities at that time really seemed to think this was just one more conqueror 
and that they could do what they had always done, which was when the conqueror left or they thought they were strong enough that they could go into battle and try to win their freedom back. Uh, that turned to be turned out to be not be true with Philip and uh, Alexander the Great. So I'm not sure if any of the city-states really understood that. I'm not sure if they clearly none of the city-states matched the Macedonians' fighting prowess, and uh, that's something uh, as well. Um, but the um, I, I guess. I don't want to say it was inevitable, but I think Macedonia at that point in time was strong, the strongest power, and that they imposed their will on the Boeotia, on Attica, on the Peloponnese. And if you fought back after being uh, conquered, uh, the response was swift and, and frankly brutal. Yeah, and um, I think Phocian's advice to Alexander to attempt basically to get him to go fight the Persians instead of the Greeks. Um, while well-intentioned, you know, Alexander's focus was also on securing his, his rear, uh, which involved, um, as, as you pointed out, not only uh, conquering the Greek city-states, forcing them to uh, provide troops and shipping and money for his army, um, but also the solitary lesson of absolute ruthlessness in the event that they uh, backtracked at all. So I, I think I probably agree with you on that. Any other lessons you think we can so, get for leadership from these two? Um, well, uh, I was particularly struck by uh, Cato the Younger. And uh, in Cato, I really saw a lot of um, leadership lessons very relevant for today. Uh, Mastering the purse is not only a good political strategy, but that is absolutely something that a business leader has to get a hold of and a handle on. And that the area I work in of, of a type of anti-fraud called uh, anti-corruption is absolutely mandatory as well. You may ha may not have the corruption endemic to uh, first century BC Rome in your corporation, but there are going to be fraudulent and, and nefarious actors who try to defraud your company. And so um, uh, having a handle on those, being able to utilize uh, modern accounting techniques and strategies, and, or in my world, Richard, policies and procedures uh, mm -hmm. to communicate those, I think is absolutely essential. So I was able to, to really draw that. Um, anything from Foshan that you saw uh, other than the uncorruptibility and perhaps the antithesis of inflexibility? Well, I do think that um, he provided a uh, salutary purpose for the assembly because Athens at the time was, was prone to these wild swings um, that I guess are endemic to a popular democracy. Um, basically, he would always argue the other side. And as I've said, it was, it was not really a matter of he was always for peace or always for war. He was just against whatever popular passions were proposing and, and frequently just argued for delay and, and consideration. Uh, when Alexander had died and the, the assembly was you know, campaigning to rebel and uh, Foshan was supposedly remarked, well, if he's dead today, he'll still be dead tomorrow. Um, so let's you know, think about this a little <laughs> before we pick a side. <clears throat> and 
I think ultimately that that dithering cost him um, in the in the aftermath of Alexander, and that's one of the reasons that uh, his his inability to pick a side, picking a side and getting the getting that wrong was also fatal at the time. So he's kind of kind of in a tough spot, but uh, but he, he he constantly argued against passion and for re- reasoned consideration. Uh, of the events and consideration of the alternatives. And I think that uh, Athens would have been well well advised to have considered that. I really enjoyed these two. Phocion, as I mentioned, was not someone I was aware of at all. Cato the Younger, I had completely misremembered. So this was a, a fun research assignment for me and, and really uh, an interesting exploration as we move forward through the histories of Greece, um, uh, seeing how Plutarch looks at uh, the destruction of the Greek city-states by Alexander, by Philip and then Alexander, and then the the loss of the Republic as we move towards that uh, as well. And just a fascinating historical study for me. I agree. And I, I hope our listeners are enjoying it as, as much as I am. Um, that This turns out to be a period about which I thought I knew something, and I actually know very little. So... Um, as I said, I'm enjoying it, and, uh, and I hope our, our listeners are too. But for now, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High, and we hope you'll listen in next time. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you will join us again next week where we take up the Greek Pericles and the Roman Fabius Maximus, in episode three of our series on Plutarch's Lives. This series on Plutarch's Lives on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.